We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Go episode 599 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. We are one episode away from episode 600, uh, and we have arrived at the day of the summer solstice, uh, which will occur at 10.57 a.m. Eastern. Uh, This is the day with the most sunlight of any day of the year. Enjoy the sun as opposed to enjoying the suns, as in the Phoenix Suns, who are trading for the Wizards' Bradley Beal for pennies on the dollar. Uh, The heck with those suns. Uh, But Wednesday, June 21st is a big day for the Wizards. It is the reported day by which Kyle Kuzma and Chris Dabbs Porzingis must make their player option decisions. We now know one of the decisions. Uh, Kuzma, as expected, is declining his $13 million player option for next season. That news was broken by ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski on Tuesday afternoon. Porzingis' player option is for $36 million. There seems to be an at least decent chance that he'll exercise that option. We'll see. The Wizards re-signing Kyle Kuzma for the purpose of keeping him uh, does not make much sense given uh, that our team now is rebuilding. Although Woj did conclude his tweet on Tuesday afternoon with this, quote, a return to Washington on a new deal remains a possibility, end quote. But to me, the question with Kuzma now is, can the Wizards do a sign and trade with him? Can the Wizards get something for him? Or are they about to lose him via unrestricted free agency for nothing? Because if that is what is about to happen, uh, then we have new reason to be outraged by the Wizards for mismanaging a situation, i.e. not trading Kuzma prior to the NBA trade deadline this past February 9th. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Josh Harris and Joe Gibbs have struck a deal. The incoming lead owner of the Commanders and the greatest head coach in the history of the franchise. Big announcement on Tuesday morning. Josh Harris's Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment has become a minority owner of Joe Gibbs Racing and... Joe Gibbs is becoming a limited partner in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, although that does not mean that Joe is becoming a minority owner of the Commanders. Next segment, I'll take you through what exactly is happening here. The sports empire of Josh Harris continues to grow, and it is nice to have Coach Joe uh, and the incoming lead owner of the Commanders doing some business together. (laughs) Yeah, the all-time great laugh of Joe Gibbs. Has there ever been a better, more infectious laugh in the history of laughs? I think not. (laughs) Yeah, so I will talk Josh Harris and Joe Gibbs. And then after that, I'm going to welcome on a special guest to discuss unrestricted free agent running back 
Kareem Hunt, who the commanders have interest in, per a recent tweet from NFL insider Josina Anderson of CBS Sports HQ. I'm going to chat with Jake Burns of the Orange and Brown Report. He is the host of the OBR Film Breakdown Podcast, which is a Browns film breakdown pod. and He has studied Kareem Hunt uh, quite a bit off Hunt, having played for the Browns the last four seasons. Is Kareem Hunt shot? Or is he worth signing? Uh, also on the show, the Masson dispute. Is it actually finally ending? Uh, I will react to the big news from the Washington Post on Tuesday evening that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nationals the rest of the money owed for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million dollars. What might this mean? Does this now make the sale of the Nats something that could happen sooner rather than later? There's a lot to talk about, uh, so I will talk about all of that. And then I'll get to the actual games played by the Nats and the O's on Tuesday evening. The Nats lost yet again their 16th loss in 20 games, a 9-3 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in a game in which starting pitcher Mackenzie Gore and center fielder Victor Robles had a heated exchange in the Nats' dugout shortly after a Cardinals two-run second. Uh, The O's, though, got a big win, an 8-6 win at the American League East leading and Major League leading Tampa Bay Rays in a game in which the O's allowed a 7-0 fifth inning lead to become a 7-6 sixth inning lead, but the O's did win. Uh, and they now are just four games behind the Rays. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback to our conversation on Tuesday's show, episode 598 with NFL Business Insider Ben Fisher of Sports Business Journal. We talked a good bit about the possibility of the Commanders being the featured team on HBO's Hard Knocks this summer. Tweet from Brent Parrish. I'm proud of our team and would love to see it on Hard Knocks. Uh, Thank you for the tweet, Brent. Tweet from Chris Lawrence of Ben Fisher saying that there would not be a clear storyline with the Commanders as the subject of Hard Knocks. Writes Chris, no clear narrative. Most reviled owner sailing off as new owner picks up pieces with talented but beaten down roster and coaches slash front office scrambling for jobs. Be enemies shot. Unproven second year quarterback. Okay, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Thank you for the tweet, Chris. Yeah, Ben Fisher did also say that HBO is good enough to make just about anything interesting, but I do agree with Chris. There definitely uh, would be compelling storylines with the commanders as the subject of Hard Knocks. Tweet from CP, I think the commanders should do Hard Knocks. Time to put the organization in a positive light. The team is a bunch of good character guys. Time to let the world see what is in that locker room. At this point, the team has absolutely nothing to lose. Uh, Thank you for the tweet, CP. My guess is that the team president, Jason Wright, would not mind the commanders doing hard knocks, but that the head coach, Rod Rivera, is uh, not in love with the idea of the team doing hard knocks. I mean, think about hard knocks from each guy's perspective. If you're Jason and you are presiding over the team's business operations, and you want to sell tickets, and you want to sell sponsorships, and you want to sell merch, uh, and you want to come off well to the incoming ownership, then yeah, doing hard knocks makes sense. But if you're Ron, and you are presiding over football operations, and you are going into a season in which you almost certainly are coaching for your job, the team doing hard knocks is just one more thing that you have to worry about And it wouldn't have any significant direct benefit to football operations. The commanders, remember, cannot say no to hard knocks. Uh, There are four NFL teams that can't say no to hard knocks. And uh, those teams are the commanders, the New York Jets, the Chicago Bears, and the New Orleans Saints. The whole hard knocks situation remains strange. Last year, the announcement for the team that was featured on hard knocks in the summer was made in March. Uh, That team was the Detroit Lions. Here we are now, rapidly approaching July. Hard Knocks traditionally gets going in early August. And still, no announcement of which team will be featured on Hard Knocks this summer. Feedback 
on the Wizards trading Bradley Beal to the Phoenix Suns continues to pour in. Tweet from Mike on the uh, oh-so-underwhelming return that our Wizards are getting from the Suns. Uh, Mike is not happy with the Wizards' new front office of monumental basketball president Michael Winger, Wizards general manager Will Dawkins, and Wizards senior vice president of player personnel Travis Schlenk. Writes Mike, they just blew their best opportunity to get some ones. Yes, Beal had a no-trade clause, but he also wanted to be traded. He didn't want to be on a rebuilding team. A competent negotiator could have gotten Beal to agree to Miami. Thank you for the tweet, Mike. Uh, Maybe, okay, maybe. But I come back to this. What leverage truly did the Wizards have over Bradley Beal other than not trading him now? And then what, by the way? You know, if the Wizards did not trade Bradley Beal this offseason, they would have been trading him, what, this coming season or next offseason, and he would be older, and he would perhaps be more injured, and he still would have the no-trade clause. Bradley Beal, over the last two seasons, has played in just 90 of a possible 164 regular season games. What if the Wizards didn't trade him this offseason And then he, this coming season, his age 30 season, had a third consecutive injury plague season. The hands of Michael Winger, Will Dawkins, and Travis Schlenk were tied in this situation, especially with Beal having the no-trade clause and this sketchy scenario in which Bradley Beal's agent is Mark Bartlestein and the son's chief executive officer is Mark's son, Josh Bartlestein. What appears to have been the case is that the Wizards did have better trade offers than the one that the team is accepting from the Suns, but the Wizards could not accept any of those offers because of the Beal no-trade clause. Uh, As I talked about on Tuesday's show, NBA insider Sham Sharania of The Athletic and Stadium, he on Monday on FanDuel TV said that, quote, Washington, I'm told, had better offers on the table, but at the end of the day, Bradley Beal got to pick his choice, pick where he wanted to go, end quote. And if you're wondering what one of those offers was, NBA insider David Aldridge of The Athletic and Wizards insider Josh Robbins of The Athletic, they this past Saturday reported that the Miami Heat offered the Wizards Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, and several first-round picks for Bradley Peel. Now, if that's true, it's pretty hard to believe that the Wizards preferred the package from the Suns over the package from the Heat, Right. The Wizards from the Suns reportedly are getting Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, multiple second round picks, and a pick swap or pick swaps. What would you rather have? Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, and several first round picks, or Chris Paul, who almost certainly is never going to play for you, Landry Shamit, multiple second round picks, and a pick swap or pick swaps? The answer, of course, is that package from the Heat. But if Bradley Beal would not approve a trade to the Heat, and you know, the reporting on that has been mixed, but at least according to Sham Sharania, who is a very well-respected national NBA insider, the Wizards at the end of the day were at the mercy of Bradley Beal making his choice, and his choice was the Suns. And so if Beal would not approve a trade to the Heat, then if you're Michael Winger, Will Dawkins, and Travis Schlenk, what the heck were you supposed to do? The Wizards giving Beal not just that overpay, of a Supermax contract, five years, $251 million, but also the only no-trade clause in a current NBA contract. One of the all-time bunglings. I mean, you really can't say that enough. The owner of the Wizards, monumental sports and entertainment founder and CEO Ted Leonsis, he deserves every ounce of criticism that he's getting for this. I mean, Ted is being whacked around like a pinata, and he deserves this because he ultimately approved the no-trade clause. The negligence displayed by giving Beal this no-trade clause is incredible. If only we as Wizards fans could take legal action over this negligence. Well, if you have been harmed by the negligence of someone else, as the Wizards have been harmed by the negligence of Ted when it came to the Bradley Beal no-trade clause, uh, always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you and will fight for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace would have a field day in court with how the Wizards have mismanaged the Bradley Beal situation, but Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based 
family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. By the way, a big congratulations to Chris Nace, who was recently named the 2023 Barry J. Nace Trial Lawyer of the Year. Uh, this by the D.C. Trial Lawyers Association. Paulson and Nace fights for victims of all kinds of situations, including victims of errors made during diagnosis, during surgery, or with medication, victims of injuries caused by dangerous medications or medical devices, as well as defective auto parts, victims of accidents involving cars, trucks, bikes, or motorcycles, victims of deceptive trade practices and false advertising, Heck, victims of shady lawyers. If your attorney acts in bad faith, is unethical in his or her counsel, or is negligent in his or her work, you could have a claim for legal malpractice. Paulson and Nace has represented corporate clients throughout the region. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. So we now have a formal alliance, a formal union, a formal partnership between the incoming lead owner of the Commanders, Josh Harris, and the greatest head coach in team history, Joe Gibbs. Josh and Joe. Joe and Josh, <laughs> they now are an official tandem. Uh, now, we knew that Josh Harris and Joe Gibbs had a relationship. It was on May 12th that we got the big formal joint announcement from Commander's co-owners and co-CEOs Dan and Tanya Snyder and from Josh Harris on behalf of the Harris Ownership Group announcing that Harris had entered into an agreement by which he would purchase the Commander's. A number of people put out statements that day, including Joe Gibbs. Now, as you may recall, there had been talk that Joe might actually be part of the Josh Harris group. Uh, Joe is not part of the Josh Harris group, but he on May 12th did put out a statement that read as follows, quote, I've had the opportunity to get to know Josh Harris and the leadership team during this process and fully support his efforts to lead the new ownership group of the commanders. The NFL has grown a great deal since my time as a coach in this league, but what hasn't changed is my belief that with great leadership, from the top, the drive to win on the field and a commitment to culture, championship teams are created. Josh and his team share these values, and I am committed to doing what I can to reconnect this great franchise to the community, fan base, and alumni. End quote. So we had that, and then on Tuesday morning, Joe Gibbs Racing announced that it had, quote, received a significant investment from Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, HBSE, and Arctos Partners, end quote. In other words, Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment has become a minority owner of Joe Gibbs Racing, and the announcement said that Joe Gibbs is becoming a limited partner in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Now, this gets a little confusing, but uh, Joe Gibbs becoming a limited partner in Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment does not mean that Joe is becoming part of the Josh Harris ownership group of the Commanders. Follow me on this. Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment was founded by Josh Harris and David Blitzer in September 2017. Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment is the uh, parent company of the Josh Harris Sports Portfolio, which includes the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers and the NHL's New Jersey Devils. But Josh Harris's and David Blitzer's involvement in the ownership of the Commanders is as individuals as opposed to via Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. 
Technically speaking, the entity of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment is not buying the Commanders. Uh, The founders of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, are part of a group that is buying the Commanders. But whatever the case, uh, we have Josh Harris and Joe Gibbs now doing business. Uh, A few things strike me. First of all, if Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment has the money to make, quote, a significant investment, end quote, in Joe Gibbs Racing, (laughs) then any concerns that might have been out there about Josh Harris not having the money to buy the Commanders or not having the money to properly run the Commanders should be squashed. Now, I don't know that there are many of these concerns left, given that NFL owners approving the Josh Harris Group's purchase of the Commanders is considered a formality at this point. And given the absurd combined wealth of all of those who make up the Josh Harris Group, but I did want to point this out. I also find it interesting that Josh Harris really is becoming a super owner in professional sports. The Commanders, the 76ers, the Devils. He's part owner of the English Premier League soccer team, Crystal Palace FC. Uh, Now he's part owner of Joe Gibbs Racing. This is quite the empire that Josh Harris is building, uh, not unlike what Stan Kroenke has. Uh, Stan Kroenke owns the NFL's Los Angeles Rams, the NBA's Denver Nuggets, the NHL's Colorado Avalanche, and Major League Soccer's Colorado Rapids. And Old Stan is doing quite well, right? The Rams won the Super Bowl for the 2021 NFL season. The Avs won the Stanley Cup for the 2021-2022 NHL season. And the Nuggets just won the NBA title for the 2022-2023 NBA season. You wonder if this is the future of pro sports ownership in this country. Super owners who own multiple teams. Not that we haven't had that before, but it feels like this is becoming more and more of a thing. And then there is Joe Gibbs. So, you know, Joe now is 82. Yeah, he's 82 years old. Uh, He, of course, is arguably the single most important person in not just the history of the Commanders franchise, but in the history of Washington, D.C. sports. Like, if I ask you who is the most important person in the history of D.C. sports, there are plenty of names you can throw out there. But I don't think you're wrong if you insist that the most important person in the history of D.C. sports is Joe Gibbs. He always will be beloved in the D.C. area. Any connection that he has to the commanders is a good thing. But as much as we may not want to acknowledge this, you very much can make the case that Joe's greatest work in pro sports has come in NASCAR and not as head coach of the Redskins. If you are a NASCAR fan, you probably know most or all of what I'm about to say. But if you're not a NASCAR fan, how about this? Joe Gibbs Racing was founded in 1992. Joe Gibbs Racing has totaled more wins over NASCAR's top three national series than any other organization in the history of the sport. 401 wins, to be precise. And Joe Gibbs Racing has totaled five NASCAR Cup Series championships. Gibbs, as Skins head coach, of course, won three Super Bowls. Gibbs, as NASCAR owner, has won five NASCAR Cup Series championships. Uh, Joe was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2020, so he is a member of both the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Joe was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1996. Enough can never be said about how impressive it is that Joe Gibbs is in two halls of fame across two sports. But, you know, as much as we cherish what Joe did as Skins head coach, what he has done as NASCAR owner has maybe been even more impressive. Well, from a free agency and trade standpoint, this offseason easily has been the quietest offseason for Washington during its time with Ron Rivera as head coach in the coach-centric approach. This is the team's fourth offseason with Ron running things. Not that Washington went nuts over the previous three offseasons, but there were significant moves made in each of those offseasons. Uh, the 2020 offseason, the Redskins traded for quarterback Kyle Allen, traded away left tackle Trent Williams, 
Williams and signed multiple unrestricted free agents who ended up being very good for the team in the uh, 2020 NFC East winning season. Uh, Guys like corner Ronald Darby and tight end Logan Thomas and running back J.D. McKissick. Uh, The 2021 offseason, Washington in the first week of free agency made three big moves in signing three significant unrestricted free agents in quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, receiver Curtis Samuel, and corner William Jackson III. And then late in free agency, the team, as you may recall, signed unrestricted free agent left tackle Charles Leno Jr. and unrestricted free agent safety Bobby McCain. Uh, The 2022 offseason, the commanders didn't do a lot, but they did trade for quarterback Carson Wentz. But this offseason, the biggest moves have been the signings of unrestricted free agents like quarterback Jacoby Brissett and tackle slash guard Andrew Wiley and center slash guard Nick Gates and linebacker Cody Barton. Not a lot of juice in what the commanders have done this offseason. Although, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, these moves will not prove to be good moves. But could a move with at least some juice be coming? NFL insider Josina Anderson of CBS Sports HQ this past Thursday night, June 15th, tweeted that the commanders had, quote, quietly been making some preliminary inquiries behind the scenes on free agent running back Kareem Hunt per league source, end quote. The connection for Kareem Hunt with the team obviously would be with commander's assistant head coach slash offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy. Bieniemy was the Kansas City Chiefs running backs coach for the 2013 through 2017 seasons and was the team's offensive coordinator for the 2018 through 2022 seasons. The Chiefs took Hunt in the third round of the 2017 NFL Draft out of Toledo. He played for them for the 2017 season and for a good chunk of the 2018 season. On Monday show, episode 597, gave you my thoughts on the commanders potentially signing Hunt. I think that they should be open to signing Hunt. And, you know, understand, I say this with the idea that Kareem Hunt would be a depth piece at running back. He would uh, not necessarily be ahead of any of the team's top three running backs right now, Brian Robinson Jr., Antonio Gibson, and Chris Rodriguez Jr. But the Commanders for the 2022 regular season finished just 29th out of 32 NFL teams in rushing offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Uh, Brian Robinson Jr. and Antonio Gibson, they for the 2022 regular season finished number 39 and number 41 respectively out of 42 qualified NFL running backs in DVOA for rushing by running backs. The idea that the team is, you know, set with its running game uh, should not be the idea. And so for more now on unrestricted free agent running back Kareem Hunt, I am pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast, Jake Burns of the Orange and Brown Report. He is the host of the OBR Film Breakdown podcast, which is a Browns film breakdown pod. And so Jake has done a lot of analysis of Kareem Hunt with him having played for the Browns over the last four seasons. You can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake underscore Burns 18. Hey, Jake, how are you? Hey, we're okay. Good to talk to you too. I feel like we're catching up a lot this offseason. Yeah, uh, you were good enough to come on the show back in March to talk Jacoby Brissett off his time with the Browns. So I'm interested in your thoughts on Kareem Hunt. Uh, what would the commanders be getting in Hunt if they signed him? Yeah, I think what Kareem is at this point in his career is um, an effective player in two phases. He he is a really strong downhill power running back. So, you know, he will run through you, not around you anymore, I think as Kareem is approaching 28, which, as we all know, is late in the running back shelf life in the NFL. He is, uh, if you go check his pro football focus grades, which is not the end-all, be-all for me in terms of, you know, giving yourself an understanding of a football player, but he has had some pretty good moments throughout the early portions of his career. Uh, and then and as he went to Cleveland in 2019 and 20, I thought he was uh, pretty stellar. I, I thought he was a great compliment to Nick Chubb as a zone runner. Uh, could really get downhill and, and hit, hit, you know, hit creases quickly. Now we're a little spoiled here as as we watch Nick, who I think is one of the more gifted ba- balance, patience, and burst runners that you'll find. Kareem is a little bit more zero to one hundred, so he's a bit more, uh, you know, where's the play designed to go? I'm going to find that general direction, and then I'm going to make myself as powerful as I possibly can going through that general hole. So. Uh, listen, his his numbers, his metrics have turned downward in the last few years, especially last year. I thought the Browns got to a point where uh, they, they were just not getting, as you know, in the NFL, it's 
there's a designed amount of yards that are there. And then you have to be able as a running back to make at least one man miss and create something above the expected to be able to be a guy who gets a, a, a big share of carries. So we didn't see that uh, in, in 22. Now he came off of a pretty gnarly calf injury in 21. He was pretty beat up in 2021 and missed a pretty extensive amount of time. And then I don't know if like his body has caught up with him. He's just not as effective a runner in open space, making people miss creating multiple. If you go back and watch like his 19 and 20 film, he was making a lot of people miss in space. He's not doing that anymore. Now he will run through you. He will fall forward. He will keep the legs moving and create some yards, but he's not the multifaceted running back he used to be. And he, he's become a little less consistent in the passing game as well, which I think is, uh, is, is pretty important to understand. Like his yards per route run last year was down below one for the first time in his career. He was up at 1.6 last year on 41 targets this past year. He was at 0.83. So he's just, he's, he's left a lot on the table in that phase as well, which was a big part of his up and coming part of Kansas city days. So, um, you know, he's 28 though. He's 28. Can he give you some, some down? Can he give you, you know, 75 runs? Can he be a nice depth piece? I think he's there. What he's really good at Al and what they might be drawn to is he's a great third down pass blocking running back that the Browns trusted him to handle blocking duties over Nick. And obviously because Nick's not as adept as a pass catcher. So it, it made a little sense, but a very effective uh, third down pass blocking running back too. So it's weird. He's got this label as like a guy who can be a downhill duo in your face gap scheme runner, but he also has had this label as a pass catching running back. And I think that that has, sort of overextended itself over time, but he does the phase, which is what a lot of OCs love, which is he'll block really well in your pass protection scheme. So there's a draw to Kareem at this point at the, at the veteran minimum number. It is crazy with running backs, as you know. When it goes, it goes, and it almost never comes back. The 2023 season would be Kareem Hunt's age 28 season. He had a disappointing 2022 regular season. He averaged a career-worst 3.8 yards per carry and a career-worst 6 yards per reception. Has there been any talk of the Browns potentially re-signing Hunt, or are they done with him? I think the thing with Kareem is is really how, how his ego handles the money, right? Like Kareem is comes into the league in 17 and leads the, the league in rushing and turns a rushing title out. Now there was, you know, you would just hear little snippets of him in the media last year talking about wanting to be here for the right price. And I just, I think the Browns are kind of okay with, as far as we know right now, they could add somebody else for the cheap if that, if there's a possibility to it. But they like Jerome Ford, who they took a few years ago out of Cincinnati. He's going into year two this year. And then they have another one, uh, another young man named Demetri Felton from UCLA, who they think is a nice pass catching back. So I think they're content. If a deal for those two sides would have been there, I think it would have been done already. But they, uh, they have to cut costs in certain places. They brought in a lot of different pieces, and they're obviously – pushing a lot of money into the future and they have Deshaun's situation at the cap and all that. So I don't think there's any market for Kareem and Cleveland unless it's a very, very, very cheap deal. I mean, almost better and minimum, like we're saying here. So I think if they were in the, in the any kind of serious uh, pursuit of each other, I think it would have already happened. So I think there are other opportunities for Kareem to get some nice chances to be a mentor, but also be a good depth piece for the right situation. And, and I think he'd be, you know, obviously Eric Bieniemy is, his guy from his Kansas City days, I think there's a connection there that makes sense. He'd come in, know the system, and help the, you know, help Gibson and Robinson there, you know, guide those guys and help them out too. So I, I could see where it works. I know Denver's been buzzed a little bit too, but uh, Kareem is he's still he's still an NFL back. He's just like you said, it goes. He's lost a step. He's lost a step, and when you lose a step and you lose the ability to make some guys miss, you just become a guy, and um, you know that's sort of the the, the situation he's finding himself in. Well, another situation that uh, Kareem Hunt has found himself in is uh, the controversy. The Chiefs in November 2018 released Hunt hours after TMZ's publishing of a video that showed him shoving and kicking a woman in a Cleveland hotel 
In February 2018, the NFL in March 2019 suspended Hunt for eight games without pay for violating the league's personal conduct policy. The Browns in February 2019 signed Hunt as an unrestricted free agent. He ended up playing for them for four seasons. Was what happened with Hunt with the woman in the Cleveland Hotel at all a big topic during his time with the Browns? And did Hunt in any way misbehave during his time with the Browns? I think it was gone uh, from the from the realm of like serious poor decision making. It was one incident where I think he was pulled over with marijuana involved in the in the time he was suspended, but um, it was it wasn't small enough to uh, charge him or something. I, I just remember there being some report of that. So I, I don't. Kareem was fine when he was here. He did a lot of community outreach, uh, uh, largely because he was from the area originally. So he played his high school ball up, up near Cleveland. So he, that's home for him, you know, so doing community outreach and things of that nature is a lot easier when that's home, you know? So I think the, he did a nice job. I, I would say as well as he could have done repairing some of the reputation things. And you know, there's a lot of, if, if they do end up signing him and you want to know who Kareem is as a person, like Nick is Chubb is one of the more subdued guys you'll ever come across. Very, very quiet, <laughs> extremely awkwardly quiet at times. And Kareem is the opposite. Very boisterous, um, you know, loves to get people pumped up. He's, he's a, I think he's a guy, Al, that I would feel safe saying teammates love. Like they really love playing with him. And Nick really enjoyed it. Uh, recently had some quotes about Kareem, um, you know, because he brought out a side of Nick, a, a level of comfort, a, a getting him out of his shell sort of situation. And uh, I think Kareem was really good for Nick as a person. So, uh, and like, just developing personality on the football field as much as somebody, an introvert like Nick Chubb can. So uh, there's there's that, too, that, that most of the people that come into Kareem's life and why he gets a second shot the way he did, uh, with the Browns, not just the second shot initially, but a second contract with the Browns was that he was a great locker room presence. They loved him. Uh, he's a good person in terms of like making people around him, their life more enjoyable, which is not nothing. You know, when you, the, the coworkers who make life more enjoyable is always a positive. And it seemed like he rubbed a, a lot of people the right way with that stuff. So I think he's, like I said, if it's cheap, he's a welcome addition to a running back room, super experienced, uh, has been with the enemy. I think it could make a lot of sense for where you guys are and the depth that you would need. So, uh, and, and again, I would, I would say this, he's not going to create things that aren't there. He's not going to go above and beyond in any way, but if you need a rock solid running back who's seen it all, who can do everything because he's done everything pretty much throughout his career and can really give you some important, as I know you guys are, are going to be trying to protect Sam Howe and do some different things like that, like he will be able to provide those things for you guys. So it would be, I think as a third running back, uh, you know, eyes on being a depth piece for injury situations, whatever, I think it's as, as good as you can get, but the price has to be fair. You know, you can't, you can't pay him more than just a, just a tick above what the veteran minimum is at this point in his career. All right. Good insight on Kareem Hunt from Jake Burns of the Orange and Brown Report. He is the host of the OBR Film Breakdown Podcast, a Browns Film Breakdown Pod. Jake, thanks a lot. Thanks, Al. Really appreciate it, man. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Well, when it comes to the Nationals and Orioles on Tuesday, we had the team's games and we had the big news in the Masson dispute. And before we get to the games, we're going to talk about this big news in the Masson dispute. Washington Post national baseball writer Chelsea Janes and Washington Post sports and media reporter Ben Strauss, they on Tuesday evening reported that the O's have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million. Yes, <laughs> we actually have an agreement, a version of a peace treaty between the Nats and the O's in the Masson dispute. Now, this doesn't mean that the Masson dispute is over. Again, this money is for 2012 through 2016. There are plenty of years that have taken place <laughs> since 2016, like, oh, I don't know, 2017 through 2023. But the O's paying the Nats' money would seem to make determining fees easier moving forward. Few things in the history of Washington, D.C. sports have been as tedious as the Masson dispute. Masson, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. It was created in 2005 to televise both Nats and O's games off the relocation of the Montreal Expos in the 2004-2005 offseason to Washington, D.C., what was deemed Orioles broadcast territory. Uh, the O's were to be Masson's managing partner and initially owned 90% of Masson, while the Nats' initial ownership stake was set at 10%, beginning in 2010, the Nats' stake was to increase by 1% per year until the Nats' stake reached 33% in 2032. And correspondingly, the Orioles' stake would decrease by 1% per year until the Orioles' stake reached 67%. Beginning in 2007, Masson was to pay both teams the same amount for their telecast rights. Each team was to be paid $29 million in 2011 for that year's telecast rights. For the years following 2011, the settlement agreement required Masson, the O's, and the Nats to negotiate in good faith <laughs> to set the fair market value of the telecast rights fees in five-year increments. But of course, when we talk about Masson, the O's, and the Nats negotiating in good faith, Masson is the O's, the O's are Masson. And so, so much for good faith. The actual Masson dispute started in April 2012 when the Nats and the O's, off shockingly not having agreed on broadcast rights fees, took the dispute before the Revenue Sharing Definitions Committee, the RSDC, which was created by Major League Baseball. The back and forth has gone on and on and on and on for years and has included multiple appeals and the New York Supreme Court. A major occurrence in the Masson dispute was the RSDC twice ruling that the Nats were owed $296.8 million for 2012 through 2016. Masson paid the Nats $197.5 million. The O still owed the Nats $99.3 million. It was in October 2020 that the New York Supreme Court's appellate division ruled against the O's in an appeal, but the O's said that they would take the case to the State of New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest court. We this past April 25th learned that the State of New York Court of Appeals had ruled in favor of the Nats. In fact, all six judges ruled in favor of the Nats. The only legal option that was left for the O's in this portion of the dispute was to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which might decide to not even hear the case. And so we, on Tuesday evening, got the big news from the Washington Post that the O's have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million. This whole Masson dispute has been so ridiculous 
that MLB set this up to be a deal in perpetuity between the Nats and the O's is where you start with why this thing is such a problem. I know that so many Nats fans are so angry at the O's for the Madison dispute, and I get that. But to me, the real blame belongs with MLB, which allowed for this scenario to be concocted to begin with. The then commissioner of MLB, Bud Selig, completely caved to the then lead owner of the O's, Peter Angelos. Peter Angelos did what any other gangsta owner would have done, including, by the way, Ted Lerner, okay? If the situation was reversed, there's not a doubt in my mind that Ted Lerner would have done to the O's what Peter Angelos has done to the Nats. The onus was on MLB to be the parent, okay, to set up a situation in which both teams could do just fine, and MLB did not do that. The significance of the Masson dispute maybe finally coming to an end is huge, primarily for this reason. The Masson dispute ending would very much pave the way for the Nats to be sold. It was on April 11th, 2022, that we learned that the learners had begun exploring selling a portion or all of the Nats. April 2022. We're now in June 2023, and there has been very little movement in the sale of the Nats. And the number one reason for that has been the Masson dispute. Local television revenue is a massive chunk of revenue for Major League Baseball teams. Why would anyone pay billions of dollars for the Nats without having any certainty regarding local television revenue? Well, perhaps that certainty is coming. Uh, Now, there are multiple other complicating factors with the sale of the Nats. You start with the nature of the Nats owners, the learners. Uh, They are (laughs) notorious for grinding out deals and for extracting every last nickel out of every transaction. And I say this with respect because this is part of why the learners have had so much success in business. But talk to anyone who has negotiated with the learners, negotiating with them ain't easy. And so even with a resolved mass and dispute, the sale of the Nats will not come easy. I mean, consider the last that we heard on the sale of the Nats. The Washington Post this past April 19th reported that, quote, Ted Leonsis offered more than $2 billion to buy the Washington Nationals from the Lerner family late last year, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. It's not clear whether the learners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to it, though one person with direct knowledge of the process says the two parties have remained in touch. And quote, the report also said that Ted expressed an interest in buying Masson. Now, Ted Leonsis having offered more than $2 billion to buy the Nats prior to this potential resolution of the Masson dispute seemed like a more than fair offer. Forbes, each of the last two marches, March 2022 and March 2023, has valued the Nats as being worth $2 billion. If Ted offered more than $2 billion to buy the Nats, even without certainty regarding Masson, and the learners did not say yes, well, again, getting the learners to say yes to a sale is not going to be simple. But there's also this. So, like I said, the Post reported that Ted Leonsis expressed an interest in buying Masson. Ted Leonsis is the founder and CEO of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Capitals, the Wizards, the Mystics, and other entities, including NBC Sports Washington. What Ted wants is the dance as programming for NBC Sports Washington or some version of NBC Sports Washington. But what's also going on right now is a bursting of the bubble of uh, regional sports networks or RSNs. And of course, NBC Sports Washington is an RSN. What exactly the future of RSNs is, nobody knows. But you know, now ain't exactly a great time to be getting into the business of RSNs. You know, one of the things noted in the Washington Post report is that Masson, according to the research firm S&P Global Market Intelligence, has 3.3 million subscribers this year. That's down from 5.6 million in 2018. Cord cutting is real, as you almost certainly know. So you wonder how all of that plays into the sale of the Nats. And to make things even more complicated, you have the widespread belief, a belief that has been expressed by multiple guests on this podcast over the last few years, that when Peter Angelos dies, and he has been in failing health for years, 
the Angelos family will sell the Orioles, and that could play a role in how the Masson situation plays out. So there is a lot to be thinking about here. To me, both the Nats and the O's can't have new ownership soon enough. So I certainly hope that that is where we're headed. Now, you know, I'm not rooting for Peter Angelos to die, okay? But it's time for new ownership for the O's, just like it's time for new ownership of the Nats. This lame duck status for the learners is not good for the Nats as an organization. Now, given what's happening with the Wizards right now, I don't know that anyone is clamoring for Ted Leonsis to buy the Nats, but the point is that new ownership willing ownership is needed for the Nats. It's not good to have lame duck ownership. And if, in fact, we're now on our way to having the never-ending Masson dispute finally, mercifully ending, uh, the new ownership of the Nats may well be coming. So we on Tuesday evening had the very good Nationals news with the Washington Post report that the Orioles have agreed to pay the Nats the rest of the money owed for 2012 through 2016, about $100 million. But then we on Tuesday night had an ugly Nats loss, and in more ways than one, a 9-3 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in Game 2 of a three-game series. The Nats continue to sink. Uh, They now have lost 16 of their last 20 games. The Nats now are 27-45. and That is the worst record in the National League. And we, during the game, had an incident in the Nats' dugout. Uh, Mackenzie Gore was the Nats' starting pitcher on Tuesday night. He, in the top of the second, allowed two runs, which came on a one-out two-run homer by Dylan Carlson on a bomb to center field for a 2-0 Cardinals lead. The homer went a projected 445 feet per stat cast. But prior to the homer was Gore giving up a one-out single by Jordan Walker to the right center field gap on a ball that fell right in front of center fielder Victor Robles, who was playing very deep and seemed to be hampered by his back. The Nats this past Friday returned from rehab and reinstated Robles from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on since May 8th, retroactive to May 7th with back spasms. Well, Mackenzie Gore was not happy with what went down with Victor Robles on that single by Jordan Walker. Uh, Gore, after giving up the single, seemingly gave Robles a death stare. And then Goran Robles had what appeared to be a brief but heated discussion in the Nats dugout after the end of that two-run Cardinals second. Uh, The conversation got heated enough to where Ildemaro Vargas was among those who stepped in between Gore and Robles. This was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on what happened between Mackenzie Gore and Victor Robles. You know, obviously, you, you guys are talking about McKenzie and, and Robles. They talked about it. Uh, we talked about it. Um, for, it's good. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's good. So um, it happens. You know, we're trying to compete. It happens. What did you see on the play? And- uh, obviously, McKenzie thought he should should have caught the ball. Um, but I thought he should have caught the ball. But the, it was windy. Yeah, I think, I think he thought he was going to catch it easy, and the ball just died on him and couldn't get there. It looked like on the, um, it was showing, it looked like you went over and kind of walked by McKenzie a little bit. What prompted you to want to? I just wanted to make sure that nothing was going to go crazy there in the dugout. So um, I just got in between them and just, it, it, it was good. I mean, like I said, just a few words were said and, and then it was done. So. Do you feel like Victor is 100% healthy just watching him run the bases, take his position? It didn't seem like he Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna actually talk to him again here in a little bit um, just to see where he's at. Uh, I'll I'll find out what he's thinking. Yeah, Victor Robles on Tuesday night did not look totally healthy. I think that the personalities in this Mackenzie Gore-Victor Robles situation are worth noting. Uh, Gore is very intense. He's actually very self-critical. He did not pitch well on Tuesday night. He has not been pitching at his best lately. And Robles really has become a punching bag in a lot of ways. Now, he has brought a lot of the criticism on himself with his repeated mistakes and the fact that he has been a major league player since 2017 and the fact that he was a very highly regarded prospect who, after a good start to his major league career, really has fallen off. But 
I think it's worth noting, like, who was involved in this incident. You know, the ultra-intense score who is not doing that well right now, although overall this season, I think he's been more good than bad. And a guy in Robles who the Nats just have not had a problem being publicly critical of. I mean, Davey Martinez is not often critical of people, but if you had to say, okay, well, who is Davey most critical of publicly? I think the answer is Victor Robles, okay? And again, Robles has brought a lot of that on himself, but there seems to be this like green light with the Nats of, yeah, Victor's fair game, okay? If you want to sound off on him, you can. And uh, sure enough, Gore did, and in a pretty public way on Tuesday night. Although after the game, everyone involved did say uh, the right stuff, and it doesn't appear as if this is like going to be some lingering thing, at least on the surface. I guess we'll see. Uh, but like I said, Mackenzie Gore on Tuesday night uh, did not pitch well. He allowed five runs in six innings. He gave up nine hits, two home runs, two doubles, and five singles. He issued two walks. He did record eight strikeouts, and he did throw a lot of strikes. He over 98 pitches through 66 strikes versus 32 balls, but things overall did not go well for Mackenzie Gore. He, in the top of the second, allowed two runs. He, in the top of the fifth, allowed two runs. Gore gave up a one-out first pitch infield single by Tommy Edmond on a well-hit one-hop grounder that got away from shortstop C.J. Abrams. Gore gave up a one-out single by Paul Goldschmidt to left field. We then got an uncontested double steal by Edmond and Goldschmidt. Boy, have there been way too many of those uncontested double steals allowed by the Nats this season. Uh, Gore gave up a one-out RBI sack fly by Nolan Arenado for a 3-1 Cardinals lead, and Gore then gave up a two-out opposite field RBI double by Wilson Contreras to right center field for a 4-1 Cardinals lead. And Gore in the top of the six allowed a run on a leadoff full count homer by Dylan Carlson to left field for a 5-1 Cardinals lead, despite him having been down to the count of 1.12. The homer went a projected 404 feet per stat cast, but also for Gore in the inning was him registering three swinging strikeouts. It was good to see Gore generate the eight strikeouts. Uh, Gore somehow tossed the scoreless top of the fourth, despite giving up a one-out double by Wilson Contreras to left field, and despite issuing back-to-back two-out walks of Dylan Carlson and Paul DeYoung to load the bases. But Gore then struck out Andrew Kisner looking on three pitches for the third out. Uh, Mackenzie Gore now in this regular season, 15 starts, an ERA of 402, a whip of 141, uh, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.6. Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Mackenzie Gore. Yeah, he threw, uh, you know, for, for four innings, he threw 15 uh 15 pitches or less, which was which is awesome, you know. For you know, and that's something that we talk about with him is efficiency. Uh, and then you know, all of a sudden, he, he lost the strikes. So he started getting behind. He faced 28 28 hitters. Um, the guys he got ahead of, he was dominating. You know, so uh, our conversation with him tomorrow is just you know, when you when you get ahead, stay ahead. Um, you're really good when, you, when when you're able to do that. Uh, when he falls behind, you know, all of a sudden you get a lot, a lot of foul balls. Um, trying to work his way back in counts. Uh, that's that's when he started getting hit. Well, Mackenzie Gore on Tuesday night had problems, but so too did the Nats bullpen. Uh, two Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in three innings. Thaddeus Ward allowed two runs in two innings. And then we had a Hunter Harvey sighting. Uh, he in the top of the ninth allowed two runs in just his fifth appearance in a game in this month of June. Uh, he did not have a good inning. He threw a whopping 31 pitches. Uh, Harvey, on the first pitch that he threw, issued a leadoff hit by pitch of Wilson Contreras and then gave up a two-out, two-run homer by Paul DeYoung to center field for a 9-2 Cardinals lead. The homer went a projected 433 feet per stat cast. And then Harvey issued a two-out walk of Andrew Kisner. And then we got a throwing error by C.J. Abrams on a two-out grounder by Brendan Donovan up the middle as uh, Abrams again had problems on a grounder on which he ranged to his left. Uh, Like I said, this was an ugly game for the Nats. Uh, This also was not a good game for the Nats offense. Just three runs, just eight hits, although four of the eight hits were extra base hits. But the Nats worked just one walk and went just one for seven 
with runners in scoring position. Uh, Stone Garrett did have a good game. He is an at starting left fielder at number five banner, went two for three with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. Garrett in an at's one run fourth, a two out first pitch, RBI double to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1. Uh, the Nats did hit two triples on Tuesday night. Luis Garcia, he is an at starting second baseman at number two batter, one for four with a triple. Uh, he and the Nats, one run fourth, had a leadoff triple off the right field warning track despite having been down to the count at 1.02. A Cardinals right fielder, Dylan Carlson, was playing very shallow on the play. And Riley Adams, he was an at starting catcher and number seven batter. He went one for four with an RBI triple and two strikeouts. Uh, Adams in an at's one run ninth, two out opposite field, RBI triple to the right field corner to cut the Nats deficit to 9-3. The Nats' other extra base hit in the game was a double by C.J. Abrams. Uh, He is the Nats' starting shortstop and number nine batter, one for three with a double, also had that aforementioned throwing error, but Abrams in the Nats' one run eighth, a first pitch double to the right center field gap. But things are not good for the Nats right now. Uh, They on Tuesday night got out-homered, 3-0, the Nats in this regular season now have been out-homered by opposing teams 98-54. Yeah, 98-54. Game three for the Nats against the Cardinals Wednesday afternoon at 4.05. Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Well, the Orioles on Tuesday evening began their biggest series of the season so far, a two-game series at the American League East leading and Major League leading Tampa Bay Rays, and the O's, Joe Angel, wound up in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column! That is correct, Joe. The win column, an 8-6 win at the Rays in a game in which the O's allowed a 7-0 fifth inning lead to become a 7-6 sixth inning lead, but the O's did hold on for the win. Uh, They now are 45-27. That is the second best record in the American League, and the O's now are just four games behind the Rays. A tremendous game for the Orioles' offense. The O's on Tuesday evening totaled eight runs, 10 hits, and three walks, went three for six with runners in scoring position. Six of the Orioles' 10 hits were extra base hits, three home runs, and three doubles. The O's ripped the Rays' starting pitcher, Tyler Glasnow. He allowed six runs in four and a third innings. Austin Hayes, another good game for this guy. He is the Orioles starting left fielder at number five batter, three for four with two doubles and a single. Austin Hayes is a team leading OPS for this regular season. That was at 893. He is approaching a 900 OPS. Anthony Santander, he is the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter, two for five with a two-run homer and an RBI single. Santander in an Orioles four-run first, a one-out opposite field RBI single to left field for a one-nothing Orioles lead. And Santander in an Orioles two-run second, a two-out two-run homer to right field for a six-nothing Orioles lead. The homer winner projected 405 feet per stat cast. Santander's OPS for this regular season is up to 807. And the two retreads, <laughs> the two castoffs, Aaron Hicks and Ryan O'Hearn, they continue to produce. Aaron Hicks, what a job he's doing. He is the Orioles starting center fielder and number six batter, two for four with a three-run homer and an RBI single. Hicks in the Orioles four-run first, a two-out three-run homer to right field for a 4 nothing Orioles lead. And Hicks in the Orioles one-run eighth and RBI single to center field for an 8-6 Orioles lead and for some breathing room for the O's. Uh, the O's on May 30th as the corresponding roster move to placing center fielder Cedric Mullins on the 10-day entered list with a right groin strain signed Aaron Hicks to a major league contract off the New York Yankees on May 26, having released Hicks off having designated him for assignment. Uh, this season is Hicks's age 33 season, but he is killing it for the O's. Aaron Hicks, over 63 plate appearances with the O's, has an OPS of 1,048. Uh, also killing it for the O's, Ryan O'Hearn. He on Tuesday evening as the Orioles starting first baseman at number four batter, one for four with a solo homer and two strikeouts. He ended Orioles one run fifth 
smashed a one-out first pitch solo home run to right field for a 7-0 Orioles lead. Uh, the O's got O'Hearn from the Kansas City Royals this past January in exchange for cash. Uh, the O's purchased O'Hearn. Uh, this season is his age 29 season, and yet he over 94 plate appearances with the O's in this regular season has an OPS of 1,015. Aaron Hicks and Ryan O'Hearn, tremendous production from these guys lately. Uh, really good hitting by the O's on Tuesday evening. Solid starting pitching too. Kyle Bradish, two runs in five innings with eight strikeouts. The disappointment was that he lasted for just five innings despite the O's giving him a 6 nothing second inning lead, but he gave up just four hits, a double and three singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. He threw 92 pitches, 59 strikes versus 33 balls. Uh, the two runs that he allowed came in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night on Kyle Bradish. You know, first few innings good. I didn't think he had, I thought he had a really good slider early. The two walks was, uh, you know, that it wasn't great. Um, but good stuff. Again, that's a, re- that's a great fastball hitting team. He saw him throw a ton of sliders. Um, got some punch outs with it. You know, ran in trouble there in the fifth inning, unfortunately. I'd love to see him go a little bit deeper. But where we kind of were at the, in the game after giving up two runs kind of ended his night. Yeah, Kyle Bradish is having an up-and-down season, but your bottom line is numbers for this regular season. 13 starts, ERA a 388, whip of 126. Not bad. I mean, you certainly could work with numbers like those. Uh, the biggest problem for the O's on Tuesday evening was their bullpen in the bottom of the sixth. Uh, for the game, five Orioles relievers combined to allow four runs in four innings. All of those runs came in the bottom of the sixth. Uh, Brandon Hyde, in what ended up being a four-run six for the Rays, used three relievers, Brian Baker, Mike Bauman, and Danny Coulomb. They combined to allow four runs on a double, three singles, and two walks. Uh, The O's went from leading 7-2 to leading 7-6. This was bad. Uh, Now, Coulomb did then retire the two batters he faced in the bottom of the seventh. Uh, Yanir Cano then faced five batters and got three outs. And Felix Batista, he tossed one and a third scoreless, hitless, and walkless innings with two strikeouts for a four-out save on his 28th birthday. Uh, Happy birthday to the flamethrower, Felix Batista. He did issue a hit-by-pitch, but overall, another very good outing by Felix Batista. Big win for the O's. Uh, Wasn't easy, uh, but they got the win. Uh, Now, also for the O's, they on Tuesday morning in a flurry of roster moves, uh, designated pitcher Spencer Watkins for assignment. Uh, This stands out because Watkins pitched a lot for the O's at the major league level last season. Uh, Watkins this season had been pitching for AAA Norfolk and had been struggling. Eight games, including six starts, 26 innings, an ERA of 727, a whip of 192. But Watkins in the 2022 season pitched a lot for the O's. He in the 2022 regular season for the O's at the major league level appeared in 23 games with 20 starts, although he registered an ERA of 470 and an ERA plus of 84. He is an older prospect. Uh, this season is his age 30 season. Game two for the O's at the Rays Wednesday afternoon at 12:10. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 600, a most special show. Uh, we'll provide you with more on the Commanders, and we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Wednesday afternoon at 4.05 of Game 3 of a three-game series against the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park. The O's on Wednesday afternoon at 12.10 have game two of a two-game series at the Tampa Bay Rays. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday.